This episode of History Replays today, the Richmond History Podcast, is brought to you by Frame Nation. Frame Nation is in Shaco Bottom, right there in the Shaco Design District at 11 South 15th Street. They have an incredibly helpful, educated staff. If you have anything that you're trying to get framed or displayed in any kind of way, bring it down there. They'll they'll find the right price for, price point for you. Um, they'll find a, a frame that will actually complement and, and highlight the you know the art, the family photo. Um, diploma, whatever it is you're trying to get displayed, you know they do have that. that they have that Chris Cooley jersey that was signed. That thing was framed up really nicely. Um, I'll take one, please. Yes, thank you. Um, and go down to Frame Nation again, 11 South 15th Street. Find out more information at framenation framenation.net. Um, follow them on Facebook, Twitter at Frame Nation. Anywhere else you follow people, you should. I do. Go down to Frame Nation. today the richmond history podcast thank you very much for listening my name is jeff major i hope you're having a fantastic day i have uh, bobby levinas on the show she is the site coordinator at the john marshall house which is an amazing gym here in richmond it's owned and maintained by preservation virginia uh, which has owned it since 1909 uh, and it's the oldest brick house in richmond um, opened in us uh, uh, 1790 uh, and it's First and most famous occupant, John Marshall. You know, he is the mostly the subject of the conversation, but he's a, a fa- fascinating guy. He um, he is known as the most influential man in American history, never to be president. He is uh, the first person to serve in all three branches of the federal government. He is, um, you know, the third confirmed chief justice in the United States. He is uh, the longest serving. He's known as the great chief justice. Um, and, you know, we look at really actually more into his life than his actual judicial career, um, which I'd like to actually sit down with, uh, you know, someone, a lawyer or something, and actually get into the implications of what John Marshall actually did with modern day law. Um, but a lot of the stuff you can get uh, a little bit more detail and go and visit his house uh, here in Richmond, which you should do. You should, you know, actually, I think it's a good idea. Maybe go uh, April 11th. They're actually having a colonial decadence, chocolate decadence evening. April 13th, they're going to be doing a colonial chocolate decadence day. Um, that's where visitors get to experience uh, colonial chocolate and what, what that was like, how the colonial people actually experienced chocolate. Apparently they drank it hot, um, hot chocolate, I guess, but it seems like it's a little bit... Uh, Slightly different because um, it was uh, they use it to enliven discussions, um, maybe even a, a wake me up or uh, you know uh, for uh, afternoon lady sh- lady socials. But uh, you can get the tickets for that at preservationvirginia.org. Um, you know, go check that out. You'll find out all the information you need about the John Marshall House, um, including the fact that they reopen for their 2014 season on February 28th, which is coming up. They'll be open Friday, Saturday, and Sunday from uh, that from February 28th until December. Um, go out there, go check it out. And, and if it seems like those are somewhat odd hours, um, guess what? There's not a ton of uh, of cash of money in history, um, in the history industry. But uh, speaking of that, if you like this show, 
Uh, HistoryReplaysToday.org is a fantastic place to go. You can make a da donation there. Um, you can also support our sponsors, Frame Nation, River City Segs. Um, River City Segs, by the way, uh, throughout Black History Month, February here, will be offering four riders for $74. And in March, they're going to be introducing a brand new Women in RVA History Segway Tour. March is uh, Women's History Month. Um, that tour will be brand new. It's a two-hour tour, which is $59. Uh, but for that Women's History Month, they're going to have you doing a $19 off, making it only $40 a person. Um, $19 is when you mention the 19th Amendment, when you book. Um, to book both of those tours, you can give the River City Segs a call at 804-343-6105. Uh, That's 804-343-6105. You could also become a sponsor. That's a great way to support the show. And if you can't support the show financially, just go tell people about it. Uh, you know, go to the bank, tell the teller. Do that. Tell the teller about History Replays today. And tell the teller next to that as well um, so um, but anyways let's, uh, let's get on to this with John Marshall um, it's really Bobby Lafonis talking about John Marshall um, the conversation is a little bit roomy sounds kind of slightly echoey uh, because I kind of ch actually chose to sit in John Marshall's bedroom uh, I thought that was made it really cool uh, I don't know you know how you can humanize someone get any more personal than imagining them taking a nap or sleeping or or not sleeping frankly I mean we all have those moments where you know nights where you just don't sleep very well if you can't relate to that I mean there's you got a much better life than I do because I've had a, a few sleepless nights but I normally sleep pretty well so um, but I did start talking to Bobby uh, about um, John Marshall's childhood. Born in Fauquier County, um, so in the foothills of uh, the Blue Ridge, and it's a beautiful, beautiful area. Have you been there before? A I've lot been, of people haven't been I've there. I've never been to Fauquier that I know of. Um, from here, if you're going to drive, um, it, it takes me a couple hours to mm -hmm. get up there. And it's a gorgeous horse country. And he's family friends with George Washington? He's family right. friends with George Washington through his dad because they were both land surveyors mm -hmm. for Lord Fairfax's estate. Right. So um, there's a there's a connection there with Washington. And when he, as a young man of 19, has his life interrupted, just like so many young people today do, um, by war, mm -hmm. he joins up with his dad and a couple of his younger brothers because he's the first of 15 kids. That's amazing. Fifteen, and they all survived to adulthood. Wow, now that's even more. Impressive. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, yeah, that, yeah. Because I got a one and a half year old right now, and it's like, holy smokes, are you joking? Yeah, there's fifteen running and, around. And his mom came from um, an educated family because her dad was, um, I think, a Scottish-born. Uh, um, guy and became a minister, so he was obviously one of the intellectual mm -hmm. um, in this country, and so obviously she had a good education. Um, and we have a portrait of her in the house um, hanging right now. We all think she's kind of a saint because she had these fifteen children, right. starting a year after she married her husband Thomas Marshall, 
And she, she raised them with her husband to be all contributing members of our early, early nation. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, and a lot of them um, chose to live in Fauquier for the rest of their lives. And mm -hmm. Some of them moved to Kentucky because Thomas Marshall was asked by uh, Thomas Jefferson to survey the uh, territory of Kentucky. Um, and so he did. He took off and he took. Thomas his, is his dad, right? Thomas the dad. Mm -hmm. He took off and he brought the younger sons with him and left a couple of the girls who didn't really feel like gallivanting around at that wild territory. Right. Um, and they actually lived in, and finished growing up here with Polly and John. Okay. A couple of them did. So 15 kids, that's wow. swamping. Yeah, it's, I mean, so, after about 10, it's like, how do you have time to I, make more kids? I, like the, <laughs> I, Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. After about two, that's all I can do. Yeah. So, and were they, um, I guess you said they were educated. Were, did they have money or were they... Yeah, they were, I would say they were, they started out simple, and um, I know that John Marshall was born in a log cabin, a one-room log cabin, so it sounds almost very, um, try, you know, try right. to say that, but he was, and then pretty soon after that, they moved to a little bit larger place, which is still around, and it's in, I believe it's called Markham now. Okay. And um, it's in that same area of, um, of Fauquier County. And that's a beautiful place. It's owned privately, but it's been restored. And you can look at the outside of it. And it's got this huge stone chimney. Um, it's still a very small place. Sure. For 15 kids. Yeah. And then they finally moved to Oak Hill, which um, you can see that online, the paintings of it, and the portraits of it. And what you see is a little bit belying what it really is because Oak Hill, that John Marshall finished his um, older teenage years in before he joined up, um, was a very small manse. And then he gave, he inherited it from his dad, and then he gave it to his oldest son, Thomas. Okay. And so his oldest son, Thomas, actually built this beautiful neoclassical mansion mm -hmm. and they're kind of all together the little manse plus the mansion okay and you see all you see is this mansion when you drive there huh it's sitting up on a hill and um what did thomas i guess the father what did he do were they farmers or did they have a they, he was you know thomas his son was yeah he was um he put his hand to a lot of different things, yeah. Okay. Um, but I think they all had farmland, for right. sure. Um, and cause I guess there wasn't anything in Fauquier. I mean, there's still not a whole lot in Fauquier now. Uh, I mean, back, you know, because we're that, talking about 17... I think the 17... closest big town was Warrington, and that was, what, 18 miles away, something okay. like that. Um, and this may be crazy, but I someone was telling me that, because um, he's also affiliated with uh, Jefferson, the family is not even just with him because um, apparently his does his dad marry Jefferson's boyhood sweetheart? Does that exist? Okay, so you, you, you're, you're getting warm there. Yeah, so, um, <laughs> I knew that was someone was telling me, and I was like, that doesn't sound right. And I know when I say it, it's never going to be right unless I find out exactly what. Yeah. So what it is is that Jefferson actually um, was a 
engage to John Marshall's wife, Polly's mom, at one point in time. Okay, uh, okay. so so the of the Ambler family. So um, Polly is an Ambler, and so, her her real name is Mary Willis Ambler, and she grows up in a very um, affluent family. Right. And her mom is the one who, as a young woman, was engaged to Jefferson, and then broke it off. Okay. It's yeah. Rebecca Burwell, I believe. Yeah, and I'm glad that I said, because what I was being told was that Jefferson, Marshall's dad married Jeff. So that's, so it was, so yeah. <laughs> so like I said, I knew we were suspect when someone was telling me it. Yeah, telling I think it to that's me. how it goes. All right, so, um, so he grows up, I know he gets, um, he, did, he doesn't have formal education growing up, right? Right. Um, right. He, he basically is homeschooled by his parents, and usually in those days the mom did a lot of the reading, writing, and arithmetic essentials early on. And then um, if the dad had any kind of education, and he did, and she did, so everybody got the benefit in their older years as well, their teen years, early teen years, of all sorts of literature. Right, but she needed a full bus with all 15 of them. Like, yeah. Full school bus. Yeah. <laughs> and so he credits in his really... Thin autobiography. I mean, think about these founding fathers and the kinds of autobiographies that they wrote about themselves and mm -hmm. how big and thick they are. And then you've got John Marshall's, which he finally wrote after Justice Story needled him and needled him. Come on, we really need this. So he wrote this little teeny tiny autobiography of himself because Justice Story wouldn't give him any peace. And in the beginning of it, he says, you know, I don't know why anybody would want to read this, but just maybe my family, but that's it. He says that, um, I forget your question. That's all right. I, 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 his education. Oh, yeah. He's, he gives credit to his dad and says, I thank my dad. I'm thankful that my dad gave me the education that I have. That's it. That's He's the good. one that taught me everything there was to know about literature and um, he said he was reading Horace and Livy when he was 12 and 13 years old. Wow. Which, I mean, think about today. There are not many young sure. people that are doing that at that age. Mom gets no respect, right? That's, that's right. the way moms go right. throughout history. Mom gets no respect. <laughs> um, but so, and then he, the, the revolution is going to be breaking out. And he's still a pretty young man at that point, right? I mean, when right. He was drilling um, because, you know, word was was getting around of all of the things that were happening up in Massachusetts mm -hmm. preceding the revolution. And so there was a lot of drilling going on, and in Culpeper, he was part of the Culpeper um, militia. And um, when they were called up, he was called up as a lieutenant in that, and, um, and then joined Washington's forces. And he was chosen by Lafayette at one point as one of the 600 sharpshooters that he had to go and harry the British troops um, out there before they got to Washington's troops. Oh, wow. And pick off whoever they could. Huh. So they were sharpshooters. Wow. And Marshall is considered one of them, which is pretty amazing. That is really amazing. And then, of course, he... I mean, and we're talking like he's like... Teens? Yeah, it started at 19. 19 okay. So this is his early 20s. Mm -hmm. And um, 
And, and, and so he's serving for how long? That was a long time, really, because think about how long the American Revolution was. Sure. And he gets married at about 28 years old to Polly, and that was right near the end of the Revolution, but it wasn't quite over yet. Right, because I think he leaves in the 80, because I was looking at the timeline last night. Was, 80 or 81, right? Yeah, and I think I, it was the, the year before um, Cornwallis surrendered. Yes, so there... yes, and a number of other, if you look at some of the other Founding Fathers records, some of the other ones had left by then, too. And is there, I mean, and it wasn't considered done, a dishonor or... to leave at that point, because they'd served for so long. Okay. And Marshall had been uh, waiting and waiting and waiting for the Virginia General Assembly to raise the money they needed in order to give him the troops he needed, and they just couldn't seem to do it. Right. It got to be a, at a point where he was just hanging out in Yorktown where his dad was quartered. Mm -hmm. And that's how he met Polly, because the okay. Ambler family was living in much more humble means in an apartment next door to his dad. And they had the dad over quite a few times, Thomas over. And he was regaling the family with uh, John's John Marshall's letters to him. Nice. Yeah. Needless to say, when John Marshall got there, he realized there had been quite a lot of stories about him circulating amongst the young ladies. And um, uh, even Eliza Ambler, who was Polly's older sister, says, what we heard of John Marshall was amazing, and we were all very excited about him. She said we expected an Adonis. Mm -hmm. And when he showed up, she said he had no care for what he was wearing, uh, he looked disheveled, and so she said at that point, that's it for me, I'm not interested. Um, but she said her, her sister, who was a few years younger, at 14 just, had set her heart on getting to know this young man who sounded amazing in his personal letters to his dad. Wow. And that's Polly. And that was Polly. Yeah, that's... Um, and that, it totally makes me think of like the you know when you finally bring your date oh home and they start showing the baby pictures. Yes, like, to read exactly. Those letters. That's, that's exactly that's a good way to put it. Yeah, very embarrassing. Sure, very absolutely. Embarrassing. And Marshall, you know this. Marshall was extremely. Um, it, he really never cared about his appearance. Right. Right. And there were so many of his friends and witnesses to that effect that he really was a bit disheveled in his appearance. Sure. And the, um, but he does, I mean, he's, you know, he's not just sitting in Yorktown the whole time. There's some pretty amazing things during the Revolution, right? I mean, oh, yeah. What did they, some he sort of served thing. at Brandywine, fought at Brandywine. He fought at some Monmouth. He, there were a number of major battles that he fought in. He actually um, was sent to um, Harry Benedict Arnold when they came and um, and rifled through Richmond, which was not prepared, and mm -hmm. Thomas Jefferson, who was the then governor, had to leave, um, Marshall and his troops, um, I believe with von Steuben, were the ones that, that basically chased after him. That's fantastic. I mean, and that's another uh, reason that Jefferson, not really, because that, that he didn't like Jefferson, right? Because he like, cause I, was, like, thought he was he cowardice. He didn't really said anything about the fact that Jefferson had to leave town. And when you think about it, professionally speaking, Marshall was in, in the service of the military, and Jefferson's job was 
to make sure that he was out of town, um, okay. out of the capital, if Benedict Arnold was coming with a pile of British troops sure. to sack the town. So um, he never really said anything about that particular episode, even though there have been other earlier biographers who've said that that was the cause of their trouble, okay. or one of the causes. Um, but they certainly didn't get along later on. Sure. Um, and then, you know, so he gets out of the military, and I guess at that point, um, are people, are they heroes? Like, if they come back, like, if you, you're, you've left the military, you're going to... Oh, yeah. You know, you're right. I mean, they're not, like... He left, um, and had achieved the rank of captain, and, um, I mean, he was considered, really, he was considered quite a catch. So, okay. but before he leaves, he takes a few courses at William and Mary because he's always wanted to be a lawyer. He says so in his autobiography that he really always wanted to be a lawyer. And he had been studying Blackstone's commentaries on English law, English common law, what, as, a, as a young man before the revolution. Mm -hmm. And there is some tradition that says that he was studying apprenticing to a lawyer in Warrington. Okay. And so... That's all before the war. And then at the end of the war, he's in Yorktown. He's courting Polly. Mm -hmm. Doesn't want to get too far away because she has other suitors. And he really, really loves her. Mm -hmm. And he thinks she feels the same about him. And she does. Right. But she's still seeing other guys, including a guy named Major Dick, if you can believe that. And so he goes to William and Mary a few miles down the road. And he actually accomplishes in a very small amount of time, three, four months, um, in the summertime, he accomplishes getting his law degree and having the certificate signed by the then governor, which was Thomas Jefferson again. So right. his cousin, his distant cousin, mm -hmm. is um, is signing off on that, which is another irony. And, and he studies with Witt, George Witt, right? Or he studies with one of the stellar lights of law, which is right. George Witt. And... Um, who's the chancellor? Who's the dean of right. the new law school there? And and so once he leaves, is he coming straight to Richmond, or I mean, after he goes that? to Fauquier to practice, okay. but um, he he visits. I think that one year he visits once in Richmond to visit Polly and mm -hmm. and stay with Polly because her parents have moved to Richmond, and um, her dad, Jacqueline Ambler becomes, I believe he's the um, the treasurer for the new state, okay. Virginia. Huh. So he's gone for working for the royal government of the colony, and then he throws his hat in, Jacqueline throws his hat in with the um, American colonists who are fighting against the mother country, and at that point they fall into, you know, they don't have a lot of money. Their right. money goes down the toilet. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then, they find their way back to being okay because he's he's really good with finances and he's got good connections and that helps John Marshall later on. So. Right, sure. Um, so he's he represents Fauquier as a delegate to the General Assembly. That helps too. Right. And I mean this is I'm assuming that his connections with like Washington and whatnot are aren't hurt either, right? I mean is, is the family not already the family's already the Marshall family's already at least somewhat statured, right? I mean, yes. Um, 
I think when you think about he he's poised to marry Polly, and um, the family's not going to receive or even give any attention to a country bumpkin like the Marshalls, which is kind of what they might have thought of them. Okay. Um, before the war. Right. But because of the war and because of the fact that he's an officer, he's lifted up in social status. So that makes him um, someone desirable for sure. their daughter Polly. And is he is he representing the crown at that point? Did you say that? Did I just imagine you said that? I just thought about it. No, I was talking that. about his father-in-law. His oh, his okay. father. All right. So I just doubled back there. I was just, I was like, wait, did she yeah, just say something insane that, that I should have? Yeah, no. <laughs> right. Um, although, I mean, he was very familiar with um, growing up in colonial society. Mm -hmm. so. Mm -hmm. um, and so then once he leaves there, he's going to, what year is he actually coming to Richmond? Or do we know, like, ballpark? Um, he gets married to Polly, and they they settle in here. Right. And that is, and, and they get married in 1783, I believe it so is. So, mid-1780s. January. Like okay. Um, and, but not in this house, right? They don't move oh, No, not in this house okay. until 1788 is when it's being built, and that's just after uh, the ratification debates that he participates sure. in. Um, and he's living, um, we're not really sure, that's one of the mysteries okay. of where he's living, but we know that he owns a place about where the edge of the courthouse is, between around 8th Street, mm -hmm. he owns a place. Okay. Um, and Clay, somewhere in there. Okay. So he may have been living there with Polly and his young family by the time this house is built and watching, certainly watching it go up. Go okay. up. And are they slave owners? They are slave owners, yes. Okay. Um, this is a slave society. Right. And while in his later years, his um, writings for the Supreme Court and his opinions, the few that he writes about slave cases, mm -hmm. become more and more against slavery. Um, in his, all of his life, he owns slaves. Okay. All of his life. Sure. Um, the and so when he gets here to Richmond, I mean, he I know he starts practicing. He makes a name for himself pretty, as, especially as a lawyer, pretty quickly, right? He really I mean, does. There's a couple of really fun stories too. Um, one of them goes with a great picture that you can find on the internet if you just Google, you know, pictures, images of Marshall, mm -hmm. and one of them is of him in these funky looking uh, knee bridges that are, he just looks like he's disheveled, okay? Mm -hmm. But he's appearing in court and defending someone, pleading before the court, his, the defendant's case. And so what's, what I love about that image is that it really does represent Marshall. And there's a story that goes um, with, with this particular image to me, and that is that a man comes in from out of town and he's looking for a lawyer and he doesn't know who's a really good lawyer in Richmond. Right. So he asks a gentleman that he sees who's very well dressed and the gentleman says, well, you want to hire this guy, John Marshall. Well, he takes one look at John Marshall in his disheveled state. He probably has a cravat that's, you know, twisted to his side and, um, you know, maybe his shirt's a little dirty and, and ruffled up in the wrong places and, 
and his knee breeches are a little old-fashioned and not, not really looking like the natty guy that a lawyer should look like. And the guy takes one look at him and says, oh, I don't think so. And so he gives all of his money to a different lawyer and then proceeds to watch them battle it out in a case while he sits there to see how they do before this guy takes his case. And he watches them and sees that Marshall outdoes this guy one, two, three, immediately, because he's just so keen-minded. And so after that particular court case, he, she, he runs over to Marshall, explains the whole story to him, and says, I really didn't know, and I'm really, really sorry that I judged you by what you looked like. And Marshall thought it was so funny, and he took the guy's case, even though the guy couldn't pay him hardly anything at all, because he'd given all his money to this other Right. <laughs> and then that's like, uh, I feel like inspiration of like Matlock and like every uh, <laughs> every law TV show ever right there like yes. um, you never would suspect in the yeah, very you end never would. Um, but he's uh, he, he goes into politics pretty quickly right I think he's on city council um, or he does he serves in every branch of the local state government local and state government right and his judging I know because he's doing being a representative and stuff like that I mean is he a judge because because he works in, uh, well, he's a congressman for Henrico in the Adams administration, correct? I mean, I, I believe that's the time period. But is he judging? Yeah, and what that? I love about that is that Washington is the one that gets him to be in the U.S. Congress. Okay. Washington is now out of office as president, mm -hmm. and he calls Bushrod, his nephew, who uh, Marshall went to law school with, and they knew one another from then on. Um, he, he calls his nephew Bushrod and Marshall up to Mount Vernon. Right. Well, they go, okay, we'll go up because, you know, that, that's our hero, basically. Right. And they, they go up, and he says, look, guys, I really need you as strong Federalists because we need some representation here in Congress. Mm -hmm. And so you, you need to go out and run in this election. And, of course, Bushrod says right away, okay, I'll do it because, you know, my uncle said so, and so I'm going to do it. And Marshall, who's very strong-willed, says, I'm sorry, I can't. And Washington is very perturbed with him, and there's some tension in their relationship. Well, they go to bed that night, and, and Marshall decides that he's going to tiptoe out of there really early the next morning. I mean, really early. So he's got boots in hand, and he starts going out the door thinking, I'll get out of here because I don't want to cause any more trouble. And who's right there in front of him but Washington? So he can't get out the door, and Washington decides to take a whole new tack, and he says, look, puts his arm around him and tries the fatherly approach. Well, that does Marshall in. Because he says, look, this is what happened to me. I wanted to be out of out of serving my country, I'd done it for so long, and then my country needed me. Right. And all I wanted to do was be home and be a farmer and be with my family. And I knew this would be the hardest job in the world if I had to leave home and do this job. Mm -hmm. And yet, I knew it would also be the most meaningful, and so I did it, to serve my country again. Right. And what could Marshall say to that? Yeah. Got to, right? And so that's what got him into running 
uh, in Congress. Yeah. And does he, are there any, um, I don't know, are there any, like, noteworthy things that he votes for or does while he's there? I've never heard him talk about well, I know he voted against um, the Alien and Sedition Act. Okay. And that was not a party-line vote. So, I mean, Marshall was a guy who voted what he thought was right for his country. He certainly was a strong Federalist. I mm -hmm. mean, his, the seeds of his political beliefs started with um, his stay in Valley Forge and how he saw all of these soldiers dying because of the deprivation of not being able to have a government that could raise money enough to feed, clothe, and shelter them. Right. And so for, for that winter, they're dying mm -hmm. of malnutrition and other diseases. And so he knows that their best bet for their country to stay together is a strong union. So they needed a strong central government to pull all these disparate states together that were squabbling for what they wanted for themselves. Sure. Huh. And the, um, and so then he is, is that before or after he goes to France? Is he, he goes to France, um, he does go to France in 1797 to 98. Mm -hmm. And that's, so that's after, that's after, he, or he is a representative at that time? Or? He is, no, he's a diplomat at that time, and he's asked by President Adams to go overseas, and this will be his one and only trip overseas to ever. When you think about Jefferson, Adams, and some of these other guys who've been abroad quite a bit, Marshall is one of the few that really, that's the only time he went overseas, and yet he has this amazing head for foreign policy. Oh, right, and, and I think if you have uh, that boat ride, that, that one would be enough for me. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. I, I've right. flown it, and it was, it was something, but like on that boat ride, I'd be like, yeah, I think I've had enough. And I think Polly was really, really upset with him for going, so imagine the tension of his personal life. Um, she's saying, look, I'm, I'm about to have, uh, you know, I'm pregnant with a, another baby, I've just lost one. And you're going away now? The timing is terrible. Sure. And again, Marshall says, my country needs me, Polly. And I don't know what else to do. The president is asking himself to go. Right. And it so is. he leaves, and she, she doesn't write him but one letter the entire time he's gone. And what is the intent of him going? I mean, what is just to, just to go be a diplomat, or is, there, is he on a mission of some sort? Or? You're right. He's on a mission. Okay. He's definitely on a mission. Um I believe France was pressing U.S. Um, citizens into their navy, and they were also absconding with our merchant ships. Okay. And so, um, because of that, uh, we had to send some diplomats over to deal with that situation. And the government at the time, it's right after the French Revolution, um, they're still not settled in there in a proper established post-revolutionary government other than to say it was the directory. So if you remember that time, right. there's a lot of upheaval. Mm -hmm. And Talleyrand is in charge of foreign policy. Sure. And so because the other directors were dealing with other things, including Napoleon and other things like that, um, they really weren't keeping an eye on what was going on with the U.S. Mm -hmm. And so Talleyrand really had a lot of power in that regard. Mm -hmm. That was 
that was um, good and bad for the United States. Good because he lived in the United States, he knew the politics here. Bad because he wanted a big bribe and he expected right. the U.S. to come forward with it. Not for his country, but for himself alone. He, he was greedy. He wanted, he wanted to be able to retire in, in, um, in style. Right. And, and Marshall won't give it. And Marshall right? won't that, give it. And that's basically where he gets into some problems, right? I mean, that's, uh, that's not working out for him. Yeah, the French, um, uh, since the directory had been in power, um, had been dealing with other countries in the same way, where you pay us a douceur or a sweetener, and then we'll do business with you. Then we'll talk policy. Um, then we'll talk foreign relationships. Um, Marshall and Charles Pinckney and Albert Jerry um, were sent by the United States to deal with Talleyrand, and they were given a very long leash um, because think about it, you're, you're not able to talk with each other over the telephone, um, so you can't really get news from one another and get what do you want us to say kind of stuff. Sure. So they gave him some broad outlines and then said, you know, go do what you can for the United States. Right. And Marshall did. Um, he, he basically was the one that held the party line and said, the United States doesn't deal in bribes. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not how we do business. And we need to talk with you. And so Talleyrand, of course, set up these obstacles to get to talking about foreign policy. Mm -hmm. And it took them almost eight months before finally they just ended up having to leave. And in some ways it was a failed mission because of that. But in some ways it was a huge success. And he was um, hailed as a hero when he got back in for New not, York and uh, Philadelphia. Because just for toeing the line, right? Not setting that precedent of... Uh, of paying that bribe. Yeah. Yeah. And so but what is... There's scandal, though, when they come back, right? I mean, it's like, you know, the... Um, I mean, why, why is that scandalous? Isn't it, isn't it turned out to be... It, it was difficult because there were a number of Republicans uh, led by Jefferson mm -hmm. that were um, very... that felt that the French Re Revolution was a wonderful thing and that we should have really strong... We should be backing the French. Right. I mean, look what they did for our country. Think about it. Sure. That's what they're thinking. And, and Marshall very much supported the French Revolution. However, um, he had to make sure that there was a stable relationship and no war, no, not another war, with Britain, too. Right. And so he had to keep a neutral kind of policy with both of them and not get involved in in anything that would cause that to be a problem. Well, that's Washington's, uh, you know, in his going away speech. No, what do you call that? The uh, when <laughs> the farewell address. <laughs> that's what the world's going away party is what I was is in my head. But um, as we talking like not getting entangled in foreign alliances and whatnot, right? I mean, even though the French had helped us, I mean that becomes. Um, you know, a pretty big issue, it seems like. So the, uh, I mean, but it's, it's the XYZ affair, right? Because that's, and like, what's... Yeah, so Monsieur X, Monsieur Y, and Monsieur Z were sent by Talleyrand to see if, if each of those guys could procure this bribe 
from uh, the diplomats. And so when X couldn't get it, then Y was sent, and then when Y couldn't get it, Z was sent, uh, that sort of thing. And these gentlemen were given these sort of code names. Okay, fair enough. That's awesome. Because I actually never really understood a lot of that. <laughs> yeah, sense. yeah. It's so it's so um, that there's a lot of detail that um, I can get bogged down in with that sure. story. But it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating story, and the human side of it is fascinating as well because Talleyrand is a really interesting character who ends up absolutely adoring American. Uh, politics, because okay. he spent time here. He absolutely loved Alexander Hamilton and vice versa. Mm -hmm. They were kind of the, each other's fan club. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really interesting, too. It was something I didn't realize. And he thought it was horrible that Americans would sweat and labor and burn the midnight oil when they were serving their country, like Alexander Hamilton was. He was like, why is he out there in this little low office working until past midnight when he's, he's a, you know, a, a, an officer of your, of your country, right. for heaven's sake? Why wouldn't he be given a lot of money for what he does? Right. That's just not the French way. That quarterly type does. of idea of you're working for the king, so the king should be giving you some stuff as opposed to you're working for some schlub who you should be Working for to, the right? people. I mean, even if you're working for the people, they should be honoring you by right. letting yeah. you make lots of money. Yeah. Right? And, and what's happened to our politicians today? So sure. we want to make sure that um, some of these principles that I'm learning in American history and you're learning in American history are things that we bring back today because they're important. Right, absolutely. The, uh, and a lot of those things get uh, twisted in the media. Yes. People, um, uh, and twisted in politics for you know backing up whichever party you want to grab it and say this is what it really means. Mm -hmm. um, I think what's really neat about the human story too about the XYZ affair is that Marshall stays with, um, let's see, he stays with a widow who is beautiful, young, and um, she houses, I believe, Pinckney and um, Marshall. Mm -hmm. I could be wrong about Pinckney. It might be El Elbridge Jerry that she houses. But she houses them in her country estate. And then she takes them to the theater, and she introduces them to culture. And um, her name is Madame de Villette. Mm -hmm. There is a little wonder or question as to whether there was ever any affair between the two of them. Right. Kind of like what, what stays in, in Paris. Right. The affair in yeah. the XYZ affair. Yeah. 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 Um, but uh, the... <coughs> me, and then... I guess when he comes home, you said he's a hero. Um, so is, is that before he gets, he's going to Congress? I, I don't understand. So is he going to do that as a congressman? Now you're going to make me go get my Jane Smith biography. Yeah, so, get the chronology right. So is he, but is he, because he goes, because I think he goes from Congress to Secretary of State, right? Yes. Like straight to that. Yes. Um, and he's only Secretary of State for only a few months. A short months, while. Right? Then, yeah, not that long. And, and he's serving under President Adams, who's appointed him. Okay, yeah. And Adams says, you know, to Marshall, as Secretary of State, I've asked John Jay to return. John Jay was the first 
chief justice of our Supreme Court, and he said no. Um, well, think about it. There's no power. There's no prestige. There's no real great money involved in the job, and and uh, and that's inconceivable for us because we know the Supreme Court is the highest law of the land. Right. But back then, in our this is the early nation. Um, it hasn't been going for very long. Sure. Um, John Jay was the first, and then after him, Rutledge, and he really only served, I believe it was, for about six months. Mm -hmm. And then he's never um, confirmed by um, the Senate. Right. So he leaves. And then there's one other man, and I'm forgetting his name. Do you remember him? I can't remember right offhand. Yeah. And it's like trying to name all the bonds. I can never, I always, always forget one. But the, but and then, and then Marshall, and really, it's more of an accidental almost that Adams asks him to be chief justice. He turns to him and he says, "Who will I ask?" After he's thought about all these other guys that have already served, and then he turns and he sees Marshall and he says, "I think it will be you." Wow. And Marshall has no idea that's coming. Nice. And he just bows his head and and is pleased. Is really pleased. And the so because that is a that's like a big uh, detail oriented thing. So he's the fourth chief justice, but he's the third confirmed chief justice. Yeah, right? if you want to put it that way, exactly. Yeah. And what is is there a reason that Rutledge never got confirmed, or he just? That's a, that's another story. That's, that's a whole another story. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so um, when he becomes chief, I mean, like you're saying, it's not a very good job, right? I mean, they have to ride circuit, from what I understand, right? So, um, so his circuit is is um, all of Virginia and all of North Carolina. So he serves in Richmond when he's doing circuit court duty for the federal court here. And that involves later on the Nuremberg treason trial. Right, and that's basically like an appeal appellate court. What do we think today, right? And that's not, or or right? Am I right about that? Or? This particular trial went straight to the Supreme Court. Right. It didn't go up from one thing to another. But I mean, like when they're riding circuit, I mean, yeah. that basically means they're doing the appellate courts before yeah. that. Okay. Um, but so the Burr trial is that is in where is that held? Is that enriching? What's so neat about that is it starts out, the inquest is um, in a tavern. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so Aaron Burr has just finished um, under armed federal guard traveling a thousand miles from um, where he was um, captured, down, way down in the Louisiana Purchase Territory, way down south near mm -hmm. New Orleans. Not in New Orleans, but nearby. And, um, and they brought him under armed guard back to where he's supposed to be tried, which is Richmond. Why is it Richmond? Because he's being charged with um, the capital crime of plotting on Blennerhassett Island, which at the time was considered part of Virginia. It's actually now in West Virginia. Okay. So he's, he's, he's being charged with plotting to conspire against um, an enemy country, the Spanish country, to seize some Spanish territory, mm -hmm. and um, and then allegedly, part two of that is whether or not he really did this, we don't know, but he allegedly was charged with 
um, making it, wanting to make himself the head of that new territory to secede from the Union rather than mm-hmm. bring it into the Union. Right, and that's Jefferson's position. Yeah, right. Jefferson's really, really, this is a great trial because Jefferson's really, really, he's, he's had it out for, for Aaron Burr since Aaron Burr, and he ran against the Federalists in the 1800 election, mm-hmm. and they won right. cleanly. Um, but, but in those days, the guy who got the most electoral votes was the president, and the next guy who got the next number of votes was the vice president. So you could end up with somebody who was from a different persuasion, a political persuasion than you as your right. vice president. Well, in this case, Aaron Burr was a Republican, um, so he agreed with Jefferson, but he was not about to cede the office of presidency to Jefferson without a struggle, because they tied in that electoral vote. So the electoral vote went to the House of Representatives to break the tie, and it took them, I don't know, something like thirty over 30 votes before they finally gave up a couple of people gave up and abstained from voting so that Jefferson won. That's a, but yeah. 30 times it had to be voted over and over and over again. So Jefferson just thought, look, I'm a senior statesman. Why wouldn't he just cede it to me? Right. And so I, he had it out for Burr after that, even though Burr served as his as vice president. Sure. And I, I, like, one of my favorite that, I can't remember where I read this, but there was some quote that Alexander Hamilton, because Hamilton hated as well, right, and, and Jefferson, but hated Burr more. Think about it. Marshall becomes Chief Justice in 1801. Almost immediately after that, the Marbury versus Madison mm-hmm. trial happens, and um, that's in 1803. Right, and I guess going to that because that's important because because I guess Adams is appointed him as what setting the, the midnight appointments. Yes, right, and that's Marshall's part of that. So the. Um, well, Marshall, Marshall really, Adams was lucky enough to get the reins on that and to get that opportunity. So he he puts Marshall in thinking, I've got this great, strong Federalist. What, what he doesn't realize later is that Marshall becomes, in that role, um, a guy who's, yes, he's a Federalist, but even more so, he's a Nationalist. Right. He's for keeping the country together and not seeing it um, just dissolve into sure. squabbling states. So he wants to see this country stay together, and he wants to see how he can strengthen the union of the country. Right. And so, because Marbury versus Madison is basically other people in those midnight appointments yes. suing to get their appointments. Right? That's because right. Particularly um, a justice of the peace, or assumed to be justice of the peace, he thought, should have been issued his paperwork in order to say, I am the Justice of the Peace right. of the D.C. area. And he never got his paperwork. And Jeff, I mean, uh, um, Jefferson and Madison walk in the White House and find a stack of papers that were not delivered and basically say, since they're not delivered, they're garbage. Right. right. Jefferson and, goes over to the State Department and he realizes there's this shocking thing that Adams, you know, is still... Is still been working, even though he was part of a lame duck presidency. He's still been working, and he he used this new um, uh, this this new uh, judicial act, judiciary act that his Federalists had pushed through um, to appoint all of these new 
judges that were Federalists. Mm -hmm. So he's furious. And he says, well, the ones that haven't been served papers, they're not going to get their papers served. Just don't serve them. So Madison doesn't serve them. And so um, Marbury, Mr. Marbury, goes to the Chief Justice and says, um, I think the Supreme Court is where I need to come in order to ask you to please um, tell Mr. Jefferson to give me my papers. Right. Mr. Jefferson and Mr. Madison. And I think the, this is always seems strange because isn't the Secretary of State was supposed to be the one that delivered all that stuff? Yes. Right? It's awkward. So, that's exactly right. So, and that's why he was still Secretary of State. So, the, I guess that, that in itself is odd that they, that they would even be able to sit on a court today with a case that, um, you know, involving themselves. That's right. Fact. That's and, right. And it seems like all this, because he ends up actually siding with Jefferson. Am I right? It's, like it's a really amazing dance that he does in order to make sure that he knows that the Supreme Court is weak. He knows that if he tries to enforce, uh, to force Jefferson to hand over to Mr. Marbury his papers, he's, he may get the presidency saying, nope, not going to do it, and there won't be anything he can do to make him do it. Right. And yet at the same time, he knows that his job as the highest law of the land, even if it is a weak court, is to do that very thing. And so he looks through this very, very carefully and decides how it can best work out. Uh, and, and what he comes up with is an amazing opinion that he delivers and that the court delivers unanimously. And that is that he dresses down Jefferson a bit, the president, because the president, he says, is in an office that is not above the law. And so if the law states that you should be um, handing over papers that, um, that the former president has signed and sealed, then your job at, uh, as the president of the United States now is to tell your secretary of state to deliver those papers. Mm -hmm. um, so he does say that in his opinion. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time he says, and yet, so he says Mr. Marbury should receive what is due him, and yet is this court the place in order to give him what he needs? And he says, it's not. Okay. And therefore, we can't give Mr. Marbury the, the satisfaction of getting the justice of the peace job that he wants. Huh. And so, and that's all because of, he said that Congress overstepped its bounds in this Judiciary Act, and, um, and that he didn't strike down the whole Judiciary Act, but he struck down a part of it that said that they could expand the, judi the judiciary's powers mm -hmm. because they can't go and change the Constitution that way and say, ooh, I think I'm going to fix this so that you know, we can give more power to the Supreme Court than right. the Constitution says. Sure. So that's basically, he was declaring an act of Congress, which is in a really backhanded way he did this. He's declaring an act of Congress unconstitutional. Right. And that is enforcing that wonderful 
idea of judicial review, which had been around for a long time, and it wasn't the first time it had ever come up, but it was the first time that it had ever been really used in a federal court. Okay. Um, and the, uh, uh, I mean, I guess we, uh, we somewhat got out of the, um, um, the, but actually before, it's not even that important at that time, right? I mean, was it, nowadays it's like every, everybody is turning to that. As yeah, everybody president. talks about it, but I mean, at the time, at the time didn't even care? It I mean, had was it not like, really, it did not really have the impact that it would have as time went by. Okay. So it did manage to strengthen the Supreme Court's power, but um, not quite as much as, as the end of Marshall's tenure and then later on. Sure. Um, and then I guess we, yeah, because we started talking about Aaron Burr. I yeah, guess that's like, so it starts, though, with that case, which is so wild. Right. So you look back at that and you see how Jefferson and Marshall have clashed. Mm -hmm. And they're going to clash again in this, in this trial. Sure. And how is that going to happen? Because he's the president, so what does he have to do with this, this particular court case? Right. Well, he's pulling all the strings. He wants to see Aaron Burr found guilty. And so he puts at um, the attorney general, the lawyer's disposal, the prosecutor's disposal, every practical amenity he can give him, including a huge budget, the taxpayer's budget, in order to find any witness, he said, I will give you the power, we will give them clemency, if you can find anybody that will stand up and testify against Aaron Burr, even if they're guilty. Wow. And so, all the way through the trial, Jefferson is really the main prosecutor. So he's, and he's also said, and this is 1807, six years later, he's also said, before Congress, when he finds Aaron Burr, what he's up to, he says, you know, he's guilty. And he says it before Congress, before the trial's even started. Wow. So Marshall's job is really hard because he's got to make sure that this guy, who seems like a pretty bad rogue, mm -hmm. is, is, is a guy that's going to get a fair trial even so. Sure. Huh. And, the, and, and that, does that trial take place? In right Virginia? here in Richmond. Yeah. I mean, it's like talk of the town, right? I mean, it's like it's a, the talk the of the whole town. Country. It's the talk of the nation. Yeah. So if you think about any national trial, any trial that's gotten into a national spectacle where everybody's watching it on TV, that's the kind of thing that was going on back then. Only instead of TV, the entire population size swelled to double the size it was. Sure. So it went from five thousand to ten thousand here in Richmond. Wow. People were just hanging out the windows practically. Um, they were betting on the ponies. They were they were also betting on the trial, the outcome of the trial. Nice. And um, everybody wanted to know what was going on. And they loved the fact that there was this huge um, national political spectacle between these um, just huge um, icons. Mm -hmm. So you've got Jefferson, who's the popular president, versus Aaron Burr, who was the guy who murdered... Alexander Hamilton in a duel in 1804, and then goes off and goes rogue on us and decides he's going to start his own country, perhaps. Right. Versus Marshall, who's got to fight against Jefferson again. <laughs> so it's a big, big trial. Sure. And so John Wickham, 
is now representing who only lives a couple blocks away from where we are right now. Right, right. He's a block away, and he's considered the brilliant lawyer here in the Richmond area and possibly in Virginia. And um, so he's going to lead the defense mm -hmm. for Aaron Burr. And really think about it, Aaron Burr was his own defense attorney. Right, sure. And so he's the first. Wickham is his second. Okay. And, um, and there are a number of other people on each side, so they both have their dream teams. George Hay is in the prosecution, along with, obviously, Jefferson pulling the strings behind. And I believe there's uh, Benjamin Botts there, too, and, oh gosh, Luther Martin, who was this really amazing, dramatic, alcoholic lawyer who, um, who just um, made these, like, three, four-hour speeches that would just make everybody fall over. They were so dramatic and, and fun. So it was just a huge spectacle in the courtroom. And it all happened, it went from the Swan Tavern to the Chief Justice saying, well, this isn't going to work because the lobby was so packed with people just for that initial um, meeting with Aaron Burr and the judge that he had to move it to the biggest public courtroom he could find. So he used the Hall of Delegates in the Capitol. And so, wait, so why would it be in a tavern in the first place? It was just, a, it just, was a large enough space at the time. Okay. But when he realized how big the public attention uh, was going to be, and that they had a right to see what was going on in the proceedings. But is there no court normal courtroom, or are they just courts normally in taverns? Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I mean, is that seems a little weird, right? That's, that's a really good question. You'll have to. You'll have to look up a little bit more of that. But okay. yeah, I mean, they had courtrooms, obviously, but the... the, the concessions are there. The right? sessions <laughs> are happening, and the sessions are, are mostly happening inside the Capitol, because that's, that's got a lot of these public rooms that you can yeah. use. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, and there may... I, I don't know if there's any truth to this, that, which I've heard as well, is that the night before the trial... Uh, Wickham invites Burr and the whole legal team to his house with John Marshall to all parties. Yeah, it's, it's a big dinner party. What, what people don't realize is that Aaron Burr is being wined and dined here in Richmond even <laughs> um, before he becomes a prisoner, okay? So he's being wined and dined here in Richmond. Then once he's and, and by, um, just by sent to, to, or? to prison, he's he actually has a very cushy prison cell where he basically tells um, his prison guard when and, and, and where he's going to, what, what time he's going to go to bed and all the rest. And he has uh, every, every amenity possible. Yeah. And then on top of that, he's got, oh gosh, uh, widows and their daughters coming and visiting him and bringing him strawberries and cream and all sorts of things in his prison cell because mm -hmm. He's an amazing, um, charismatic leader okay. who had won a lot of kudos in the American Revolution, distinguished himself greatly. And look, he, he was at the pinnacle of power before he fell from grace politically after mm -hmm. he dueled Alexander Hamilton. Right. I mean, he almost, like you say, he almost won the presidency, but yeah. I mean, he was that close of yeah. winning votes. Yeah. Um, and... So there, because I've heard a lot of conspiracy, you know, people that conspiracy lovers, well, they had dinner the night before, and, you know, we threw the case or, or whatever. Uh, but it's only, what, a two-day trial? 
something really oh, gosh. It's so, not that long, so the right? trial right. is a very long and lengthy proceeding. If you okay. count all of the proceedings, it goes from March through October. That's a huge, huge yeah. span of time. The first trial, which is the one that all of us and even the law books talk about the most, is just August, basically. Okay. Um, but if you count all of the proceedings, it's incredibly lengthy. And the lawyers are debating um, in front of John Marshall a lot of what he's going to then rule on as what's going to be the definition for what are the parameters of the trial for August. Right. And then there are two more trials after that right here. Um, that still have to do with trying to get Aaron Burr, and Jefferson just won't let go, even though he knows it's a lost cause. Sure. And the, and I guess, and he gets him off because of witnesses? There's no, the, the two witnesses? Is that? Yeah. Um, if you look at the definition of, of, the constitutional definition of treason, which is sitting right in front That's of us beautiful. because we're up here in the, We could have totally pretended like we memorized the whole Constitution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll I'll edit that part out. People on podcasts say we have memorized the entire constitution. (laughs) But here it is. It's it's Article Three, and it's what is it? Section Three, and it's treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them, which um, is part of it, or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. So in this Mm -hmm. particular case, it involves. Levying war against the United States, which um, Aaron Burr has has definitely been accused of. He's been accused of plotting to take New Orleans, which is now a new part of the United States because of the Louisiana Purchase. Right. Seize New Orleans, and then from there, uh, stage uh, their battle to take over what was then not called Mexico, but we would call it Mexico now, or we would call it Texas now. Right. And there were a lot of Americans who really wanted to take that area, which we now know as Texas, Mm -hmm. and bring it into the Union. Um, So Jefferson knew about Aaron Burr's going up and down the Mississippi and talking to people for the last couple of years years before the Aaron Burr treason trial. He knew of that because Burr apprised him of, of what he was up to. Mm-hmm. Um, what he didn't know was that Burr was going to get himself into such a mess that there were all these very important people who were going to start sending messages to Jefferson about Burr's activities that were alarming. And then on top of that, a General Wilkinson, who was like a double spy, one for the Spanish and one for the United States, who at the time Jefferson received a code letter from saying, here's a code letter that Aaron Burr sent me, and he um, happily scratched out all the stuff that made him look guilty and said, look here, Aaron Burr's guilty of doing this against the United States, and he's going to make himself emperor, too. Right. And secede from the Union. And at that point, Jefferson has to do something. Sure. Huh. And so and so he was, Jefferson's trying to get witnesses. Right. Right? But I guess there's... And he's got something like 140 assembled people who they think um, they're going to be able to run through the trial. And, so, and they're going to get enough that they're going to get this guy. No problem. Um, and 
the other part of the definition is no person shall be convicted of treason unless on the testimony of two witnesses. So you're not on on the same or her it's act, not gonna right? be easy. So it has to be like two right. people have to see you do the same exact thing. Yes, yes. And so what Marshall does is he sticks to that narrow constitutional definition of treason, even though it really hasn't been tried out very well in the American court of law. It really hasn't. There haven't been that many cases of treason to try it out and flesh it out with um, in the American court system. And so this is the big way to flesh it out. This is the big trial for that. And Marshall is very concerned that we stick to the framers' intent of why they made treason very, very difficult to convict somebody of. Mm -hmm. And that's because our definition is based on the English common law definition of treason, which was, um, it came from monarchy days. Right. And of course, you know what, 25 years earlier or so, they just finished fighting the American Revolution. They'd seen what can happen if someone even thinks or says something politically different from the king. The king just says, too bad, your head is off. Right. Um, and no so they don't want to have anything to do with taking someone and killing them or executing them because of their political beliefs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so do you think he was guilty? He should I mean, like... Uh, uh, so he's he's because he's basically talking on a technicality, right? That they can't find witnesses. They can't find two witnesses. It's it. not a technicality at all. If you think about this, this is the Constitution that Marshall right. is upholding. But I guess the the question is, was he acting against the country? And it's and that's well, the big question, right? Because if he saying was is, acting against the country, was it action that was um, levying war against the country? You know, right. and I mean that—that's the question today when you deal with people like Edward Snowden, who leak all of those very private messages, mm -hmm. you know, thousands of them, mm -hmm. um, to the world. Is that levying war against the country? Mm -hmm. um, is it bad enough that you can convict him right. with, a, with two witnesses or more that say he's done this and it's damaged the country in a very, very terrible way? Mm -hmm. And therefore, he's going to lose his life for it. Right. And so that is why it's so hard to convict somebody of treason. We don't, we don't want to get into this lightly, and we don't want to ruin what we've got as an American democracy sure. and a republic. Um, so we want to get give people the right to have a say about what they believe, yeah. whether it disagrees with our government or not. Right. Absolutely. An incredibly important thing. That we think we're how lucky we are to live in a place. And Marshall, Marshall that. really wanted to make sure that Jefferson understood that the Supreme Court was a separate branch of government, right? From the executive branch, not a pawn of the executive branch, not to be told what they were to do. Mm -hmm. Not only that, but he wanted to uphold the constitutional definition of treason. He wanted to make sure the Constitution was law. Right. Huh. And I guess, um, I mean, is, is that, those are pretty close. I mean, it's, he doesn't tap out. I mean, there's some pretty, other some pretty amazing cases, right? Because 
Yeah. So it's 30, There's a number. years, right? Yes. I mean, but the two big ones that people know about are generally like right the first what, decade. Yeah. Right? Like, I guess. Um, I think a lot of people, if they're doing U.S. history in high school, they're going to bring up McCullough versus Maryland, too, which is about the National Bank and also the um, powers of Congress. Okay. So whether or not you know you can ex the expand you know expand the powers of Congress sure. depending on what was needed, mm -hmm. what was needful, right. as Marshall said, and that's in the Constitution. Um, and so he was upholding that. But the question is, what is really needful, and what is sure. just because our party wants it? Right. And and is he? Um, I guess at that point, is he making? Like we were talking about this, how it wasn't got really good money. I mean, is he making a lot of money? Um, Marshall Marshall did really, really well as a lawyer, uh -huh. and that's I think why it was so very very hard for him to leave being an excellent lawyer here in Richmond and supporting his family and really this this big piece of property plus two hundred thousand acres of land in Kentucky and, and in Virginia. I mean, yeah, a lot yeah. of land. Land is still the main means of of value. So, so is he making money off farming while he's, he's uh, or no, is he, no, he's not making money off of farming, but he's making money off of land and land speculation. Okay, and I mean, because I mean, we're in a pretty nice house for uh, for the. 18th we're in a really nice city. house for that time period, seventeen nineties, when it was completed, and so it's it's right on the um, in the early days of um, of our early government. So mm -hmm. aptly put, it's a federalist style house, especially on the exterior. Mm -hmm. Um, you, you look at it and you see a temple front house. You know? right. that, that's more like what you see as a public building rather than a private building. Sure. So um, it's beautiful in that regard. And, and is he actually living here? Or is it, you mentioned he has other land and other places. I mean, see, is this, this like was his full primary time? domicile for 45 years. Yeah. So he, he went from being um, a lawyer um, and a delegate to the General Assembly here in Virginia to being congressman, to being secretary of state, to being chief justice, the whole gambit. Sure. And of course, he was chief justice. He was the longest serving chief justice. You know that. Right, sure. Um, but he he had, uh, I mean, he's also pretty famous for being justice and also just being a guy that just hangs out, right? I mean, he like, was such a convivial character. Yeah, he, the, was, he was such a, um, a, a wonderful host. And a really outgoing guy, and he was also um, popular with a lot of different kinds of folk. Okay. So from you know a guy he could meet in um, the tavern mm -hmm. and play cards with to a gentleman of the highest regard. Right. So everybody in between, and that that's really something to say because here Jefferson's the popular president, and yet he. He wasn't necessarily um, comfortable hanging with the peeps, right? So to right. Speak. And, and Marshall is, and yet he's the kind of the not the highborn Federalist, but he's a Federalist, and Federalists are known to be kind of a little bit snobby. Yeah, yeah. And so he's doing um, because I guess your tavern is basically your bar. Yeah. So that's like a local measure, watering home. Like me just going down to the bar and like playing cards with John Roberts right now. It's like a pretty strange concept. Yeah, unless you live in like um, you know the DC area, and you might run into very right. well-known folks. You know, 
Um, but it is a strange concept yeah. nowadays. Um, and, and I guess totally random, because he liked to drink too, though. I guess I'll get back to that. He right. loved Madeira. That was his okay. favorite drink. He had his own little Madeira wine cellar. And he he actually wrote in, in some late letters before he died. I think it was 1834, and he died in 1835. But he wrote to a friend about how he was amassing a really nice wine cellar full of Madeira, and then he was going to maybe retire to Oak Hill, which was his um, his dad's place that he'd inherited, and he was thinking of moving back to Fauquier and living there. And at that point, Polly had predeceased him by about 40 years. Okay. And then, so that's not going to be long before he passes himself, right? Right. Right, so he never did get to retire from the Supreme Court. Right, because he goes all the way until the day he dies, right? And right, five like, presidents, that's all the way amazing. through to Andrew Jackson, from Adams to Andrew Jackson. And how did that work out? Very Scott, I never really thought about it, because like, that's a couple willful people right there. Yeah, that didn't work out so well. I think he was really, really fit to be tied by the time he um, he got got through with Andrew Jackson. Yeah. And even Andrew Jackson really had some good things to say about him, which is something oh. because politically they were so... Yeah. You know, far apart. Right. I guess Jackson was pretty strict on the Constitution as long as it fulfilled what he wanted to. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and, not so and the whole Trail of Tears debacle. I mean, Marshall tried with what he could in order to um, fight against um, um, what Jackson wanted to do with the Cherokee Indians. But um, he also had to uphold the law sure. and the law at the time. Uh, was being used by uh, Jackson in order to um, exterminate Indians. Right. Um, and so what What exterminated Marshall? Um, how did he die? How did he die? So he catches a virus and his grown-up guys, a couple of his sons, um, find him slumped over in Chaco Cemetery, and they um, put him put him in a carriage, and they take him up to Philadelphia, which was basically the seat of medicine at the time. And he sees a professional there, and the physician says there's nothing he can do for him. Huh. Um, what we do know is that he had an enlarged liver, that he had some kind of really bad virus, and um, he, he passed away in Philadelphia. Okay. And then they um, they had him um, in a funeral procession in Philadelphia on his way to um, the ship that would take him to um, to Richmond. And then he was um, he was um, a beloved citizen here as well as all over the country. Um, and so everybody paid their respects to him. And he was buried in Chapa Cemetery next to his wife. Right, and he'd already written the epitaph for his um, for his grave, and it was really just um, just a simple message of you know, born, died, and and want to be next to Polly. Right. But when he died, there were a couple of things that um, he said, and one of them was Justice Story, who was a great friend of his, and it, and a junior member of the. Uh, of the Supreme Court when he joined on. Mm-hmm. Um, became really good friends with Marshall and was Marshall kind of mentored him. 
said that he had said a prayer for the Union before he died because he really foreseen the, um, the dissolution of the Union. He was worried about it. Right. He saw the states' rights um, battling against the Union, the strength of the Union, and he was worried that this was just going to sure. get worse and worse. Well, I don't know how yeah how far along that was. But, uh, if South 1935, Carolina, the yeah. slave laws were getting stricter and stricter. Right. They'd, we'd already had Gabriel's Rebellion in 18, mm -hmm. what was that, 1801 or so? Yeah. And um, there were a number of other revolts, slave revolts, that really showed um, the South and Virginia that um, that there was a really combustible atmosphere here. Mm -hmm. And in Richmond in particular, you've got a huge free black population mm -hmm. and you're curtailing their rights now because of the white sphere of slave rebellion. Mm -hmm. And you've also slapped on harsher rules for, for slaves even though you've got this burgeoning in group of industries in uh, Richmond that you want to use slaves uh, to go ahead and work in. So you're hiring them out and you're giving them freedom to live on their own. Right. And work in these industries. Sure. So and it's um, it's a really combustible atmosphere. Absolutely. Um, yeah, he didn't pray quite as hard because it didn't work out. <laughs> Yeah. Um, that, the prayer wasn't answered, but I guess it did in the end. It worked out. Yes. Um, but so is he, at, when he's found in Chaco, um, Chaco Hill Cemetery, I mean, is he, I guess, visiting Polly? Yes. Or is okay? So yes. that's, um, so that's funny that he would be, he's basically on his own grave. And yeah. And then shipped to Philadelphia and, and then brought back to that grave. Yeah. Um, and it's weird because Marshall's lived to be 80 years old. That's yeah. pretty, that's pretty amazing. He's been, a chief justice for 31 years. Wow. He's seen it all. And he's um, achieved the unachievable. He's really defined what our American constitutional government is. Sure. Um, if, if Washington founded our country, Marshall really founded the government. That was a quote from Gene Smith in his biography. And I really like it. I think it's really... It's really a good one. You know, he's also the most influential or consequential guy who never became president. Right. So, yeah. And I mean, I think it's pretty amazing that, I mean, people can, I mean, especially thinking about him sleeping here, I mean, we're in his bedroom. I mean, right now, I mean, <laughs> it's pretty cool. Um, I mean, people should come to the house, right? Because, I mean, the house is, is very, it's not changed much, right? I mean, it's right. very Right. Architecturally, this place has not changed, and part of that is, really, the main thing is it, it stayed in the family from the time that um, Marshall had it built until the time that um, it left his family's hands, and that was 1909. Mm -hmm. And then early preservationists saved, um, saved it from a city destroying it to build John Marshall High School here. Right, which and was built was like right in the backyard, right? Right. I mean, it, it, so the high school pictures of that really kind of cool, weird. Um, uh, was here right behind the house within spitting distance of the back porch. Oh, gosh. You know, from 1909 to 1960. Right. And when Marshall was here, would he go the whole block? 
Or how much land would it Yeah, be? he owned the whole block. That's so awesome. So from 8th to 9th Street and then from Marshall Street to Clay Street. So it's huge. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, and yeah, tour is fantastic and people should come yeah. and check it out. Yeah. Um, and I think we've rambled about John Marshall for a long time. So, Good. Um, Good. Thank awesome. you very yeah. much. Thank you. I appreciate it. That was it. Thank you very much, Bobby Levinas. I appreciate your time. Hope everybody enjoyed hearing about John Marshall. Go check out more information about John Marshall down at the John Marshall House at 818 East Marshall Street. Support Preservation Virginia. Support History Replays today. Uh, Again, you can uh, do anything from sponsor this podcast. You can get information about that. You can email me, Jeff Major, J-E-F-F-M-A-J-E-R, at historyreplaystoday.org you can also just donate to the podcast if you don't have any wares to pedal you can do that at historyreplaystoday.org there is a donut donate button uh, every little bit uh, helps uh, you can also just tell people about it follow the podcast at History Replays Today on uh, Facebook, Tumblr on Twitter at History Replays you can go to um, you know, subscribe on iTunes Stitcher uh, and actually, go ahead and uh, if you can write a review, that would be awesome. I would appreciate that. If not, you know, if you didn't like it, don't write a review. That's for sure. Um, but anyways, let me know what you think. Suggest a guest. Thanks for listening and make it a great day.